From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set, and to the first of a three-part series about surgical training. Remember, if you like the podcast, please take a few seconds to rate us on whatever platform you use to download this. Today, we're talking with Dr. Charles Friel about his journey to become a surgeon, something he did not anticipate when he started medical school. Dr. Friel is originally from Boston. He attended Bowdoin College before going to Harvard University for his medical training, then did his general surgery training at the New England Deaconess Hospital. Dr. Friel then attended the University of Minnesota for his colon and rectal specialty training and arrived at the University of Virginia in 2001 as a colorectal surgeon. He became chief of colon and rectal surgery in 2007 and continues to serve in that role and as the surgical director of the Digestive Health Center of Excellence at UVA. He came to Madison to talk about his research and the clinical care of colorectal surgery patients, and I thought that's where we would focus on the podcast too. But as you'll hear, our discussion took a different, fascinating direction as we talked instead about what it was that made Dr. Friel interested in surgery to begin with. Enjoy. So, Dr. Friel, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. And uh, you've made the trip up from Virginia. I did. Yeah. It was a little rough, but we got here. It took okay. about 12 hours, but I'm here. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of direct flights to either of our cities. And... Well, it is a little, it's a little daunting getting out of Charlottesville. From what I understand, it can be a little daunting getting into Madison, although that was really not the problem. It was getting out of Charlottesville was my problem. As you said, when you arrived here, you, um, you've, you've sort of been... Uh, following our colorectal surgeon here, Dr. Foley, uh, for much of your career. Maybe you could just kind of recap uh, a little bit of the journey, not just the airline trip, but uh, how, how, you, how you found your way to, to being one, really one of the, the preeminent colorectal surgeons in the country. You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. Um, it's a little embarrassing, probably. I mean, it was, and I was struggling. My daughter's now in college. She's actually at Bowdoin College, which is where I went to college. And, and I remember, you know, being in college and truthfully had no clue what I wanted to do. My mother always said, I think you'd be a good doctor. It seemed a little kind of a little embarrassing to kind of pursue a career because your mother suggested it. But the truth is, she knew her children. And, you know, there, there was four of us, and she, I was the only one she said, I think you'd be a good doctor. Huh. So I, I think she saw something in me that suggested that I would like that profession. I, of course, resisted it because my mother suggested it. That's what you have to do, right? Um, yeah. But I ultimately went to medical school, and then when I went to medical school, I really had every intention of being an internist. I mean, it just never even dawned on me that I would be a surgeon. And... Um, I didn't even actually do my original surgical clerkship to the fourth year of my medical student career, which was a quirk in the schedule, but it didn't bother me because I had no intention of being a surgeon. And then I did surgery and fell in love with it. It required some fast footwork for me to kind of get my career back on track. Yeah. And then I, I went into the, the Deaconess Hospital, again, with no intent of a specialty. I thought I'd probably be a general surgeon. And then that evolved into love and colorectal, and that's kind of where I am. So I, I can't say I, I do. I do worry a little bit. I'm actually I worry a lot of it that we're asking these young people to make definitive decisions about their career extraordinarily early now, and I, I, that certainly was not my route. And I, I do fear that we're going to 
pigeonhole people a little bit too early now. Yeah, we've shifted the, the rotations here back by six months, so people start halfway through their second year to sort of give them a little bit more of that time. Because I, I, I was sort of in the, in the same boat, you know. I thought I was going to do emergency medicine and policy on the side and, you know, was not expecting surgery and then started on pediatric surgery and the clouds parted and the angels sang and I was like, well, okay, this is going to be a very different plan. But it's hard in, in medical school, right, when, right. if that I, happens I, late. And I think that um, you're absolutely right. We do the same thing. I don't know if most medical schools Maybe are doing that now, but clearly are we, are, we are earlier too in yeah. that decision tree. I think I'm not so concerned about them. I think we're now asking people to choose their specialties now, right? So we're getting fast track into vascular. We're getting, you know, uh, it used to be that you went through general, then you went into plastics. Plastics has basically done away with that. So you have to choose at a medical school that you want to be a plastic surgeon. You know, cardiac is, you know, now has a path. So you yeah. can choose to go into cardiac. Vascular is moving towards that. You know, fortunately, colorectal and pediatric and things like that have not done that. But I, I do worry about that. I mean, that just seems too early for people to be choosing a true specialty. Right. Because what exposure have you had? You right? haven't had any exposure. Maybe you rotated on colorectals and medical zoom. Maybe you didn't. Yeah. And we have uh, innumerable residents that have gone into plastics, for example, that had they, they were all going to go into cardiac, honestly, hmm. and then they ended up going into plastics. And that door is now closing for them. Yeah. Which, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's the way it is. There's a sense that we want to lessen the training. Right. But it's not clear to me we've actually done that. I mean, I think they end up going, you know, the plastic surgery residency, for as an example, is still, I think, six years or five years. And they really haven't decreased the amount of time that much. Um, but they are asking them to choose much, much earlier. Yeah. Potentially heavy price to pay for, you know, one less year of training. You know, I guess that's a philosophical argument. I don't know what the right answer is. I don't think anybody does. It's also not clear to me personally. I mean, I've heard people talk about this, and in vascular in particular, there was someone who gave a talk. The impetus to change was not necessarily to create a better training program. It was actually because people weren't choosing vascular. And so, <laughs> so they thought that if they had an alternative training paradigm, they could get attract people out of medical school. Yeah. But that bothers me too. Like, like we should change things because we think it's a better training paradigm, not because we're trying to attract people. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know? So, you know, I, I could be wrong, uh, and I've been wrong about a lot of things in my life. But I do worry about that for these young people because it was not clear to me. My path evolved slowly over time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What really strikes me about this conversation is is how, in my own mind, it relates to what you actually talked about uh, in your grand rounds today which is sort of you describe a convoluted path and sort of this journey of unexpected decisions and unexpected directions that, that we've taken in rectal cancer where we sort of thought we had one right way to do it and then the data sort of suggested, no, it's maybe something else, and then the pendulum sort of swung back in another direction as we appreciated it more. Talk to us a little bit about that because I actually think that, that, that it's related in a way to, to sort of these decisions that we make that we think are like the right choices and then we realize with more evidence that maybe we're not quite right. Your point is well taken and it could be um, in both directions, right? So we do have to be willing to kind of look at our outcomes, if you will, and decide if our outcome is the desired outcome we want, whether it's survival and local recurrence and rectal cancer or attrition and residency or you know, happiness in your career choice. And I do think that the, the, the training length was becoming a bit overwhelming for people. And I think 
you know, to, for these folks that are trying to shorten training length, that's desirable, I think. And, uh, um, you know, it's in this day and age, it's harder and harder to ask people to accumulate debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, the debt is becoming a, a major issue in these young people's lives. Um, and they want to get on with stuff. So I think that that is um, an admirable goal. And and if we accomplish that, then all the power to the decision makers. But we just have to be careful and we need to kind of go back and circle back and reevaluate. And perhaps we need to do surveys or whatnot to ask these folks, you know, was it okay to choose that early? I mean, the, the, the problem I see is that we they look at attrition rates and they say, well, nobody's dropping out. Well, they don't have much of a choice. Like, you know, what's plan B if you've gone, you know, you've right. committed yourself to some path and you realize maybe I don't like that path. Like I'm going to start all over again. So, yeah, the sunk cost fallacy is is hard, right? Yeah. yeah. So we just have to be careful, you know, because these are hard, hard decisions for young people. Can you talk a little bit about your role as an educator? I, I know uh, when Dr. Foley introduced you, he said that, you know, you have won some of the most prestigious awards around uh, for, for education. How do you view your role as a surgeon and as a teacher? To me, they, they're, they're, they're intimately commingled. You know, I, I think we are unique. I mean, and I, I could be wrong, but I think we're unique as educators because we educate in the environment that we actually work in. When I think of professors of law and professors of whatever, economics and history, you know, they're in largely a classroom setting and they may have consulting businesses and whatnot, but the actual educational experience is in a classroom environment. 95% of what I do is in the operating room, on the wards, in the clinics, with real patients and, and a real practice. And so my success as an educator has been intimately involved with my success as a surgeon, right? Because if I don't have patience, I don't have opportunities to, to teach people. Why have I been you know, reasonably successful in my education role? I think it's I've been able to take advantage of those opportunities and kind of work, do my job as a surgeon, but simultaneously do my job as an educator and not separate the two. I've kind of embraced that and said, this is you know who I am. And that has been largely effective for me. Now, I, I will say that there are days that I'm a better educator than in, in, than others, right? I mean, Absolutely. if I'm stressed out or someone's sick, or, or and I even tell students that I say, "Listen, you know, what part of your job is to kind of read the situation? And if I look like I'm overwhelmed, like maybe it's the time to take a step back, write it down, ask me later, because I love talking about that stuff. Right. But maybe pick and choose your moments to say, like, what happened there? There's blood coming from the ceiling, then like. That's not the time to ask an anatomy question. And if I'm getting a little grumpy, yeah. and, and, and I'm usually fairly obvious, my, my mood's going. And but I, but I think that's okay. That's kind of what makes us human too. I mean, I think the students that kind of recognize that and say, "All right, well, it's a hard job, and uh, it's good that someone cares." Right? Yeah, and maybe like our role, as much as our role in the operating room is to teach. This is the anatomy. These are the things, the landmarks that you look for in this particular condition. I, I think, like you say, I, so much of our role is modeling our profession and being sort of salespeople for surgery, saying, you know, this is this is what this job would look like if you chose to go in this, right? And it, the, maybe the, that's all the more important as people are being forced to choose earlier and earlier. I think your your point is well taken. I don't know about ten years ago, 
we had a little bit of a run where we had students that were from our, our university that were going into surgery and unfortunately got into surgery somewhere else mm -hmm. and um, decided it wasn't the path for them. That's okay. I mean, I, I'm not begrudging that, but, but we did ask ourselves a little bit, like, were, were we somehow giving a false impression of what surgery was, right? Mm. Like, was our rotation, I don't want to say, too cushy or too easy. So people were coming through your rotation saying, but, that looks amazing. I want to be a surgeon. Then going into other training programs and saying, eh, never mind. Well, but also perhaps we were giving them an unrealistic, yeah, an unrealistic picture of what surgery was. You sure. know, we weren't asking them to take call. We weren't we weren't asking them to take a lot of patients. We weren't really giving them the full experience. They just kind of saw what we did in the operating room, which is always, you know, as you know, it's pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. But I'm not sure we gave them the complete picture that you talked about, and yeah. so. We do ask our students to take call now. We do ask them to kind of, you know, write notes and, and be responsible and be accountable, not only because I think it's a better educational opportunity, but as you pointed out, for that select few that are trying to decide whether they want to do surgery or not, I think it's our obligation to give them an honest, right. an honest kind of view of what that world looks like. Maybe we are salesmen to some degree of surgery, but there is sort of an obligation for truth in advertising, right? Like, oh, one hundred percent. There's no yeah. doubt we're salesmen. Yeah. I mean, if you have the right personality and you want to do it, I, I should be able to make that. You know, I, you know, I always tell people if you if you choose surgery, and ultimately it wasn't for you, and like you know, if, if and I don't know what that means exactly, but if there was some gene or something that I could predict that said you shouldn't be a surgeon and you actually choose it and then you and then you decide to move on in life, that's fine. Yeah. You know, that's just the process. But if you if you should be a surgeon, if there's again some gene and it says, you know, labeled surgeon and, right. your and mom you, knows for a fact. You and you yeah, right. And you end up dropping out of surgery for other factors, whether it's the the environment that you go into, perhaps you work with people that you're not inspired by, that's a tragedy to me. Right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and so that's why when they, when I tell the res, the medical students when they're choosing a residency, you know, we all do an appy roughly the same way. What you're trying to find is a place that culturally fits with you as a person, because right. it's a long training program, and you have to feel at home, because then you're a bit more likely to to be successful as students contemplate the match. So a lot of, you know, the match is coming up now. People are going to be ranking their programs. Yeah. And I remember that in my own mind, you know, there were programs that were illustrious where I felt no connection to the people and programs that were less illustrious where I felt like, oh, I, these are, this is a neat place. Like, I feel like I would be at home here. I, I think it's important to pay attention to those signs, right? A hundred percent, you know, part, partly because, and I, I have to admit, I had this discussion with uh, some other faculty members, and they, they corrected me, and which was which was fair. I was thinking of surgery. I mean, surgery is, a, you know, for our program, it's seven years. Yeah. You know, and it's roughly 25, 26 to 32, 33. And you have to be in an environment that allows your life to grow, right? right. Not just as a surgeon, but as a person. It's a big, big commitment. Historically, like you've done college, it's four years. You've done medical school, it's four years. You can kind of, you know, muscle through anything for three or four years. Yeah. But a surgical commitment, you really want to make sure it's a place that you want to be. And that's probably different if you choose emergency medicine or whatnot. So, you know, the, the person I was having this discussion with said, yeah, you know, emergency medicine's probably different because it's only three years. 
it may be that you should go to the place that gives you the best training because for three years you can pretty much do anything mm-hmm. and then move on with your life. But for surgery, it's a long time. Yeah. And you want your other part of your life to grow. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So what advice do you give then to your medical students you know, when they come on your rotation, maybe they also think they're going to be going into internal medicine and are suddenly, you know, bit by the bug of surgery. How would you suggest that students plan their surgical rotation if they think they're interested in surgery? Or, or you know, what, did, what should they do if they unexpectedly find themselves loving surgery, having expected to be ER doctors? Well, I think the... I think um, the first thing you, you have to do is, you know, get, get into a room by yourself and really analyze why you liked it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think it's very easy to be on a rotation and either like it or dislike it because of the team you're on. Yeah. So I remember when I did medicine way back when, I just was on an awesome team. I just loved the people. Yeah. And like, wow, it was just fun. And, um, and I was, you know, very, very close to choosing that as a career because I just thought this is fun. But when I kind of took a step back and I kind of looked at why I liked it, what I liked was, you know, the woman that was leading our team. She was super great and she was a great doctor and she was enthusiastic and she was energetic and, you know, the junior residents were great and I got to, they had me involved and engaged and it was just a really wonderful experience. And I liked the material, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And vice versa. You could go, you could want to be a pediatric surgeon and do a pediatric surgery rotation, and perhaps you interact with somebody that's just not your cup of tea. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're like, oh my God, I hate this. But really, you actually love pediatric surgery. You just didn't like the environment. Look past that. So you got to look past it. And, yeah. and, it, and you got to look past the rotations you didn't like, and you got to look past the patients you loved. And, and decided do you love this as for the material it is or do you did you love the environment mm-hmm. the other thing i think you got to be very careful about and this is probably not true in surgery as much because the hospital is where we really do most of our work but i think in, in, in some of the medical subspecialties you know a lot of times in the medical suite you're hospital based mm-hmm. but 90% of what you know if you become a pediatrician you know, you might like pediatric inpatient medicine, but, you know, most pediatricians are in the outpatient setting. So make sure you get a, a picture of what an actual person who, who finishes the program, what their career looks like, and just make sure that you're, you're, you're embracing that as, as well. Now, you might end up being a hospitalist, and I suspect if I had gone into internal medicine, I think that's where I would have ended up. Yeah. Because I actually like the hospital. And I, I, I probably wouldn't have been so happy in the outpatient setting. And I might not have figured that out, but I would have figured it out eventually. So you have to make sure that you see the profession as, as not, not just one setting, but all the settings. Mm-hmm. I also kind of tell people to think about your life, right? Like when you're 25, 26, you know, you're young, you're healthy, your body doesn't hurt, you're energetic. Ah, oh, those were the days. Yeah, right. <laughs> you may or may not have a family. Yeah. Um, you may, or, you know, I, I don't want to make assumptions of what, what people's choices are, but but you do have choices in the rest of your life. Um, you, you one day you will be sixty, you know, and so you have to decide like, is this a is this a job that I'm going to like for forty some odd years, and is there growth? And one of the reasons I 
like colorectal surgery, what it appealed to me was that there's big operations, mm -hmm. but there's also small operations. And so I could see myself as I get older saying, you know what, you know, those big operations that I thought were kind of cool when I was 32 years old, 34 years old, you know, and now I'm 62, 63, 64, and I'm not ready to give it up. I'm not sure I want to do that anymore. Yeah. So I could right. do anorectal. I could do colonoscopy. I could, I could allow my, my job to grow with me. Whereas there's some other professions you might choose where you're a little bit stuck. You know, you do one thing and that's it. If you tire of that or, or perhaps your body tells you you can't do it anymore, what's the next step? So think yeah. about that, that's not just in point. the last five, what, you know, what are you going to do next five years, but you're going to do this for the next 30 years, 40 years. Right. And what's the versatility within that? And what's the versatility? Yeah. Now, you know, you don't have to, you know, that's a, that could be a little daunting too, mm -hmm. but at least think about it. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a cool thing about surgery too, right? right? Because there is such that range of things that you can do. Yeah. And yeah. absolutely. I mean, there's other, and I know plenty of people that, you know, for one reason or another decided they wanted to go in industry or they wanted to do, you know, administration. So there's other ways to, to grow. Yeah. But if, but if you really like the operating room and having a variety of operations, just allows you to grow as your body changes, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to feel it now. I yeah, right. You, I mean, I'm like, I mean, I'm a little bit surprised yeah. that, like, you know, my knee hurts and my elbow hurts <laughs> and, you know, things that never bothered me. And, and the other thing that's clear is you have to take care of yourself because yeah. it is a physical, it's, it's a, a physical demanding job. Contact sport. It yeah. is a bit. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your, your perspectives uh, in talking with us about you know, the range of medical careers um, in your Grand Rounds talk about uh, the evolution of, of rectal cancer. It's just a, a pleasure to have you here with us in Madison. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. I must admit the conversation went in a different direction than I thought it was going to. but That's always was... the best podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I appreciate coming. It's been super fun. And um, thanks a lot. Join us next time for the second part of our three-part series on surgical training. We'll be talking to the program director of our surgery residency, Jake Greenberg, about what makes the UW-Madison program special and about how to judge and rank a surgical training program. In part three, we'll be talking about our residents' global health experience. I hope you'll join us for the whole journey. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J-E Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin